good to see you guys. I miss you from Sunday to Sunday. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 12 this morning as we continue our series in the book of Hebrews. The author has told us we are running a race, a race of endurance, a marathon. And that because of that, we need to enter into God's training program in order that we finish the race and finish strong. The author has identified that his recipients are out of shape and unfit and that they need to get back into their spiritual training regiment and enter into God's strict training program. And now beginning in chapter 12, verse 14, the author is going to basically bring them back into uh, the, the spiritual training that, that they need, the focus that they need in order to get back into the race and, and finish well. And so in a sense, just like all of God's word, the passage we're going to look at this morning is sort of like putting us all on as Christians a, a spiritual stress test machine. It, it's going to reveal the, the strengths of, of our life and the things that, you know, we're doing well at the time. But it's also going to show up maybe some of the deficiencies in areas where we need attention. Because from God's perspective, he wants all of us as his children to function at full capacity. To not just be limping along as we talked about last week, as many Christians are, because that there's something that's causing them problems in their life. They're not willing to address it, so they keep limping along thinking it's going to heal itself. And like physically, that never happens. And so we've got to allow God to do those things in our life. So with that, we're only going to look at four verses this morning, but I, I promise you these are rich verses with a lot of stuff in here that you and I need to be reminded of. So if you follow along with me, please begin reading with me in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness, for without it no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God... That no one become like a bitter root springing up and causing trouble. And through him many become defiled. And see to it that no one becomes an immoral or godless person like Esau. Who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no opportunity for repentance although he sought the blessing with tears. As we run this race, this life of faith with God, God says, here's some things that you and I should be, in a sense, running after. These are things that should be foremost or in the forefront of our mind and our thinking and our pursuit the word pursue here, beginning in verse 14, means to seek after eagerly, diligently. Again, giving full effort to something. And the first thing the author says that we as the children of God should be giving our effort to is the pursuing of peace with everyone. It means we should seek with everything we have to live in harmony with one another. Starting with, obviously, 
our brothers and sisters in Christ, but then obviously beyond that to everyone. We should have a spirit of cooperation and accommodation always. That much of the outer conflict that takes place with others in our life is because of the inner conflict within us. And God wants to not only uh, get us to a place where we have peace with God, but where we enjoy in our life the peace of God and where everything internally is sort of tranquil. Because if everything internally within us is tranquil in a sense, then our interpersonal relationships with others usually won't be quite as, you know, upsetting and always filled with drama because there's no drama on the inside. So there's going to be less drama on the outside. When there's a lot of drama in here that even no other person knows about, but you and I, between us and God, there's probably going to be external conflict as well. So he says, pursue peace with everyone. Make it a goal. Make it a priority. Give your effort. Notice, you and I can't sit back passively and just expect everything to stay at peace. That, that even the wording he's using is reminding us, we have to be very active if we're going to be, you know, having a, a relationships that are primarily at peace. And even Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers rather than the troublemakers, for they will be called the sons or daughters of God. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. So this is one of the pursuits that we need to be obviously going after in our life. But the second one here is holiness. The word holiness is sometimes very misunderstood even by Christians. It simply means to be progressively transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfection. It does mean progressive transformation into the likeness of Jesus Christ. That every day you and I should be allowing God to make us and conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that last week. That's part of that child rearing and training that God wants to do in our lives as His children, as the sons and daughters of God. He wants to create His likeness in us so that when people view our lives, it's like, oh, that we're a reflection of our Father in heaven, you see. Just as earthly children can take on the characteristics and character of their own parents, God wants His spiritual children to take on His characteristics. And that's what it means for us to pursue holiness. Men and women of God are holy when we are living according to God's design and purpose for our lives. We can't be holy or pursuing holiness if we're living life for us and we're doing our own thing. And as we said last week, where we think that as the children of God, God, thank you for saving me, but now the rest of my life is mine. I'm going to do what I want to do, pursue what I want. Obviously, that's not pursuing holiness. Holiness is for us to live in what God wants us to be doing. God's will, 
God's purpose and God's design for our life. That's what it means to pursue holiness. So the more you and I go after and seek after eagerly doing God's will. God, what is my calling? What is my my life to be about? What's my purpose? What's my design for my life? That's pursuing holiness. Not what I want, God, but what you want for me, you see. And again, this isn't something that we can do passively. This is something we have to continually be active about. We can't just sit back as Christians and say, okay, God, make me holy. I mean, God wants that, but God is looking to us to cooperate in the process. To to have that internal motivation that this is what we want to go after more than anything else. We want to be more like Jesus Christ above everything. And that's going to be the driving force that keeps us in this race, no matter what challenges, obstacles, or hurdles we come up against. That's what will keep us in spiritual tip-top condition and in shape and fit to be able to run the race and run it well and finish strong. Pursuing Peace and holiness. And then notice at the end of verse 14, he says, and by the way, without this, he says, no Christian, no son or daughter of God can see the Lord. He's not talking about one day actually seeing the Lord in heaven. This word has nothing to do with physical sight, actually seeing the Lord. I mean, first of all, the Bible tells us that no man can see the Lord and really live and that God is spirit anyway. It's more talking about perception And discerning the Lord, meaning I now as a Christian have have an, an accurate way to perceive and discern the Lord's working in my life, what the Lord's will is for my life, his ways and how he's working with me. That's what it means to see the Lord. That's when Jesus said the same thing when he said, blessed are the pure for they shall see God. It means to clearly perceive and discern What God is doing, where God wants me to go, what God wants me to do. The clarity of God's ways and will in my life is only going to be discerned and perceived by those who are going after peace and going after holiness. Without it, you and I will not be able to clearly discern or perceive where the Lord wants us to go. And can I say, the Lord gets blamed for an awful lot. I mean, in 30 plus years even of ministry as a pastor, I just get tired of hearing Christians say, the Lord's leading me to such and such. Because we can, any Christian can make that claim. I know this is what the Lord wants me to do. And really... I think part of the reason why we as Christians play that card is because who really is going to argue with it, right? And not sound yucky, you know? So we sort of know that that's the card we can play. The Lord's leading me, so you got to be okay with what he's doing, right? The problem that the writer of Hebrews says is any of us can claim that the Lord is clearly leading me down a road. But unless I in my own life at that moment am going after peace and holiness, I can claim that the Lord is leading me clearly and that I know what God's way and will is for my life. But the author says, no, 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 no. 
Unless that person is clearly pursuing peace and holiness at that moment, none of us can clearly discern and perceive the Lord's ways and wills in our life. And in the old, bringing out an old, old saying, I like to say the proof is in the pudding, meaning you and I as Christians can claim God is leading us somewhere. But let's see what the result of that will be. Talk to me three or six or nine or months from now or a year from now. Where are you spiritually? Because my Bible tells me if the Lord is leading us somewhere, it's never going to be to a worse place spiritually than where we are now. And many Christians who've used that line on me as a pastor, oh, the Lord's leading me to to something. If you would track their life, you would find out that they're not spiritually in a good place anymore. So was that really the Lord's will to lead you to a worse place? You won't find out in the Bible. God never leads his children to a place where they're worse off spiritually than where they are now. If God is truly leading us somewhere, it will always be to a place where we are better off spiritually. To where we're even thriving more and growing more there than what we were at this moment. Sorry, I had to get that off my chest. Because like I said, I, I hear the whole Lord leading me all the time. But the author of Hebrews says, we won't be able to see the Lord. We won't be able to clearly discern or perceive what the Lord's will and his ways and his workings are in our lives. Unless at that very moment, we are also going after hard peace and holiness in our life. That's when the clarity of where God is taking us really then comes into play. That's why, again, you have this this struggle with a lot of Christians to discern what God wants and where God wants me to go. And that's where I'll take them back to a passage like this and go, you know what, folks? It starts here. It starts with us being willing to pursue peace and holiness And if you and I are engaged in that, then what God's will is for my life and where he wants me to be and his that will all then take care of itself. But you and I just have to concentrate on pursuing peace and holiness. It's the same principle Jesus said in Matthew 6.33 about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all those other things will be added unto you. But the first part is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in my life. That's where it starts. And then he says this. See to it, verse 15, which means beware of and take great interest in that no one comes short of the grace of God. Oh my. So much here. First of all, he's reminding us That in each and every one of life's situations that come up in our life, God will give us His grace. But, because again, God created us as free will people, we can either receive and apply and appropriate His grace at that moment for that situation, or we can push it away And reject it, which is what the phrase comes short of God's grace means. 
that, that in a sense, God will offer it, but I can turn my back on it, push it away, or reject it. And the author is saying, here's something else you and I as Christians have to be very well aware of at all times in our life. First of all, God is the God of all grace. And God says, I will give you my sufficient grace to deal with anything and everything. In fact, you know what? This is so important. Keep your finger there in Hebrews and go back to the book of 2 Corinthians for just a moment. The 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. This is a great verse. Because even like other verses in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, my grace is sufficient that he learned through his thorn in the flesh. This is also a good verse as well. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Notice what Paul says here to the Corinthians. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you. So that because you have enough of everything in every way at all times, you will overflow in every good work. He's basically saying, look, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you need. Or but I know this. My God, the God of grace, will give you his provision and enablement to be able to deal with whatever you need to deal with. That's never the question. The question isn't for Christians, for children of God, God hasn't given me enough grace to deal with this. No, no, no. That's never the question because God's grace is always sufficient. However big or small the situation is, God will more than give me the grace I need to deal with something. The question is never the amount or even the offering of God's grace. The question is, according to the writer of Hebrews, am I, as a child of God, coming short of that grace? Am I in some way not willing to appropriate it, apply it, receive it? Am I pushing it away and rejecting it? And here's why that's so important. Because if you go back now to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15... Here's what will happen to us as even the children of God, as Christians, if we don't appropriate and apply God's grace throughout our life in this marathon race that we are in called life. The author says, here's what will result. I will become a bitter root. Or in a sense, there will be a bitter root that will begin to plant itself within us and it will spring up in my life causing me trouble and through us many become defiled. Let's talk about this for a moment because this is so very important. The author is saying, here's what we always have to be aware of and alert to. Anytime something comes into my life, a situation, a challenge, a crisis, a trial, an adversity, anything at all. God will give me the grace to handle it and deal with it in a Christ-like, biblical, good way, healthy way. But I have a choice. At that moment, in those moments, I can choose to, okay, God, I'll accept your grace you give me the grace, I'm going to lean on your grace, depend on your grace. I'm going to allow your grace to get me through. Or we can push it away and reject it. 
And when you and I push it away and reject it, here's what begins to happen in our life. Bitterness starts to plant itself like a deep root within us. And we can become very bitter people. We can become resentful. We become very angry people. You know angry people? You know angry Christians? It's because of this. How about unforgiving? Uncooperative, unaccommodating, going back to pursuing peace. All of those things are symptoms of Christians who have in some situation in their life pushed the grace of God away and now this bitterness is beginning to entrench itself within them. And this bitterness not only causes them to resent God, but obviously then it starts to affect their own life and their own relationship with others. In fact, he says, when people get bitter, and by the way, I'll say this at this point if I don't, because I don't want to forget it. The longer you and I have allowed bitterness to sort of settle in our lives, the harder it is to remove. Because the deeper sort of that root of bitterness goes. And that, that means then that the spade of God, if you will, has to go in even deeper and cut deeper to go way down there the longer it's been in our life and uproot it if we finally want it out. And some Christians have been bitter for years over something. And the Bible says here that what happens when you and I reject the grace of God and get bitter about something is that it causes us trouble. The word trouble simply means to annoy, to irritate, to disturb us. In other words, internally we walk around with just always, ugh. Nothing goes right and I even look for things. Anything that goes wrong it just is all magnified because this bitterness is clouding everything that happens to me in my life. It clouds my perspective. It clouds my mindset. Instead of waking up in the morning and being filled with joy and optimism and hope and all of this, we begin to become these bitter people. And the sad thing is that the Bible says that bitter people, bitter Christians can then begin to notice many become defiled by. And the emphasis, even in the original language, is on the quantity of people who are tainted, contaminated, and polluted by other bitter people. It reminds me of the verse in Proverbs that says, One sinner can destroy much good. One Christian in a local church that becomes bitter over something can really do a lot of damage and harm. One Christian in a community of believers or anywhere out there in the world can cause lots of damage because when we are bitter, everything in our life, we, we don't realize how the people around us, how we can affect their attitudes. And how we can sort of change their perspective because of our yucky attitude that we have. 
It's a poisonous spirit, which is why the Bible uses that bitter root. It's a poisonous spirit that grows within us. And it gets to a point where it sort of builds momentum and carries us along to where it's just really hard not to look at life a certain way. What an awful place to be as a child of God. And yet, can I tell you, I run into bitter Christians all the time. And can I say this? It's one of the reasons why one of my prayers to God is keep bitter Christians out of the oasis. Because I don't want bitter Christians coming in and defiling our fellowship with their bad attitude. Get your attitude right and then come into the oasis. Because again, we don't realize sometimes how our bad attitude affects others in a negative way. And whether, you know, I'm sure we've thought of this on the other side. Do we really like to be around people like this? No. And when we get like this, do we think other people like to be around us? No. There have even been times in my 30 plus years of marriage to Lisa where I'll just go to her and say, I don't even like to be around myself today, so I'm just warning you. I know I'm not in a good place. Because I I just know my bad place right now is obviously going to affect everyone around me. And i got to get it right. I've allowed something to turn me sideways and I've got to get it right. I've got to let God dig in there and get that that root out that's causing bitterness because it's troubling me. It's constantly annoying me, disturbing me on the inside. And because I, again, I'm not at rest on the inside because I've got this bitterness and resentment and anger and, and frustration and unforgiving spirit in my life, then it starts to defile everybody around me. This is part of what's happened to the Hebrews. This is why they have found themselves limping along and, and, and all this because they weren't willing to continue into God's training program and, and put themselves, in a sense, on the stress test and, and let God deal with them. They, they have continued to get to a place where not only are they struggling individually, but their struggle individually is affecting negatively everybody around them in their fellowship. And they're all starting to struggle. And limp along. Which is what can happen. I remember years ago. When God gave me the opportunity to. Be with at that time. A man that was labeled the world's number one atheist. I'm using this to illustrate how bitterness can truly affect us. He shared as part of this interaction his personal testimony, if you will, of how he became an atheist. And what we found out when he was honest and open is that when he was a child, I think he was less than 10 years old, his younger brother tragically died. And you could even see, and this man at that point was in his late 60s, early 70s, you could see even as he was telling that story, his countenance changed when he got to that place. And you could see the anger 
still in his eyes after all those years. Here was a man who was still after all those years mad at God and resenting and bitter for what had happened in his family. And he didn't like it. And can I tell you from tracking a lot of atheists and agnostics and even Christians who stopped going to church and stopped reading their Bible and walking away from the faith and walking away from the church and walking away from their brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the big reasons why is this very thing. Something happens in their life and they don't like it. And God gave them the grace to be able to deal with it, but they pushed it away. And they became very mad at God. And in their mind, in our puny little way of trying to think of things, they know, well, I can't really punch God in the face. I can't really physically take out my anger and frustration and resentment on God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go through life and I'm just going to pretend like he doesn't exist. And I'm going to tell other people he doesn't exist. And that's how I can, I can express my resentment and my bitterness and anger. Because if God was really who I think he should be, he'd have never let this happen. I mean, you hear it all the time. And that's why this is so vital. No wonder the author says, we've got to see to this. We've got to beware of this every day of our lives and give this attention because any day something could happen in our life, something could come into our life, and God's going to give us the grace to deal with it. But if we push that grace away and reject it and come short of it, all of a sudden bitterness starts to take root in our lives. And we can end up a really, really angry, resentful, unforgiving, bitter person. And we can carry that bitterness through the rest of our lives if we're not careful. And not only will it continually trouble and disturb and annoy us, but everyone around us will somehow get polluted, contaminated, and infected by our bitter, bad attitude. So here's what he says. See to it also in verse 16 that no one becomes an immoral or godless person like Esau. Notice he's making now the connection between our attitude and our actions. He's saying you and I as Christians even can get to a place where our attitude becomes so sour and so poisonous that it begins to affect our actions as Christians. We can live as if God doesn't exist. We can begin to disregard God and have no regard for God, which is what godless really means. I can become very worldly and unspiritual. My priorities can get all out of whack simply because it's driven by my attitude. I don't like the way God did this or what he did do or what he didn't do. Or I don't like what someone else did to me. And I'm getting bitter about it. I'm being frustrated about it constantly. I'm angry. And now this bad attitude, this bitter attitude is clouding now even not just my attitude. It's starting to affect my actions. I get to a place like, well, what what good is it anyway? I'm just going to go out and live my life however I want to. Look at what trying to serve Christ has done for me. Look at where it's gotten me. Nowhere. 
We start to become very unthankful and unappreciative and ungrateful. We start to always look again at the glass half empty instead of half full. It clouds everything. And like Esau, he goes on to say, we can get to a place where we can even sell our own birthright out for a single meal. Meaning this, I can begin to live for things of much lesser value and I stop prizing and appreciating the things of highest value. In Esau's day, to receive the birthright was to really be the spiritual leader of the family, to get a double portion of the inheritance. I mean, it was a big deal spiritually more than physically. It wasn't so much about getting more material, physical things. It was more about the spiritual privileges that one could have as getting the birthright. And Esau got to a place where he was just a little bit hungry. Oh, Esau, you're going to miss a meal, right? You're not going to die, right? You read it about in Genesis. Oh, I'm going to die. I haven't had one meal. I missed a meal. Here's, here, here's a birthright. Give me something to eat. Really? This thing that you should have prized and valued above everything else in your life, your birthright? You sold it out for a meal? And so the author's saying he's an example, if you will, a bad one, but an example of all people of God who begin to live for lesser things rather than valuing the things that are of greater, highest value. In other words, again, our priorities get all out of whack here in our lives. We have no appreciation or desire for the things of higher value. God stopped me here when I was studying this passage and was reminding me, Jeff, what do the choices in your life reflect? Do the choices that you make in your life, do they reflect that you're going after things of highest value? Or do the choices in your life reflect that you're living for things of lesser value than what you should be? like, ooh, good reminder, God. Thank you. I mean, like all of us, we don't like to be on the stress test. (laughs) Sometimes it reveals how out of shape and unfit we can become as Christians, but it's good. It's necessary because it shows up things in our life that if we're going to stay in the race, we're going to finish the race, we're going to become fit, and we're going to become strong, We've got to deal with these things. We can't pretend like they're not there. And so I think God wants all of us to stop and say, what about our choices? What do the choices that we make every day, every week, every month, every year in our lives, what do they reflect? Are we truly, by the choices and decisions we make in life, is it showing that we are living for the things of highest value? Or are we living for things that are of less, lesser value? That was Esau. And then this very stern warning. It says in verse 17, For you know that later when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
For he found no opportunity for repentance, although he sought the blessing with tears. Yes, tears of regret because of what he missed out on after the fact. You and I can't go back. We can't go, oh, you know what, God, like we said several weeks ago, Mulligan, can, can I go back a couple years and, and get that opportunity back? Can I, can I get all that time back that I wasted living for lesser things like Esau? No, it's not that God won't forgive us, but, but God won't always wipe out the consequences of our choices and decisions. We have to live with those consequences. And that's the hard lesson that Esau had to learn. He couldn't go back and say, oops, God, you know, now that my belly's full, I think I want that blessing. Now I realize later on what I've missed out on. Sorry, Esau. That blessing's already been transferred to somebody else. You had the opportunity, but you lost it. And by the way, Esau, if you study the whole life and story of Esau, you know that as we said earlier, he really wasn't interested in God. He was more interested in the blessing. Because you'll notice there, he was seeking the blessing. He wasn't really seeking God. It was the idea that after the fact, he realized, oh man, look what I missed. I want that, I want to get that back. No. No. Can I tell you that's why I think that there's going to be tears shed in heaven? Because I do think that there's going to be Christians who get to heaven who are going to have a lot of regretted tears like Esau. When they see who God is and what God has and what could have been, I think it'd be like, oh my goodness. Why did I live my life and make the choices that I... Why didn't I live more going after the things of highest value and putting God first in my life? Why did I allow these things that really don't matter in eternity to become so important to me? This morning, right now, God is moving. And God is giving each of us, I believe, an offering of grace. His grace. And He's saying to us, now here's the deal. You have something that you need to pay attention to, take care of, deal with. I'm going to give you the grace to deal with it. But it's up to each one of us. Are we going to truly receive it, appropriate it, apply it, and let God work in our life? Even maybe have to take us through some pain, because as we said last week, no pain, no gain, even spiritually. But ultimately, I'm going to be in a much better place, a much healthier place. I'm going to be able to start functioning at a higher capacity as a believer in Jesus Christ. Or one more time. In my life, am I going to see the grace of God offered to me and I'm going to shove it away? Because I'm going to stay bitter. I'm choosing to stay bitter. I want to be mad. I deserve to be mad. If that's your choice, 
God will let you make that choice. But know this, from the very Word of God, that root of bitterness will trouble you until you allow God to deal with it and uproot it out of your life. It will irritate you every day of your life. It will trouble you. It will disturb you. You will never be able to rest. And the sad thing is, not only are you polluting and contaminating and infecting your own life, but when you carry that root of bitterness around with you, you're contaminating and polluting and infecting everyone around you. Let God come into your life. And do the work that God wants to do this morning. Let's pray. As our worship team comes, let's pray. God, we have business to do with you this morning. Hopefully there's no one here this morning after hearing this message that they still want to maybe remain bitter if they have become bitter or allowed a root of bitterness to begin to spring up inside of them. God, I pray today that we would allow your spirit to uproot that bitterness and get rid of it whatever has caused us any kind of resentment, anger, disappointment with you, an unforgiving spirit in our life, God, help us to get rid of it. Help us to surrender to you, God, today. And to appropriate and apply your grace that is sufficient for our lives. Deal with us as your people so that we can continue to run the race efficiently and with endurance. Enable us, God, to continually pursue peace and holiness so that we can clearly see you, Lord, and know what you're doing. And discern and perceive your ways and your will for our lives. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand. And as you stand, before we sing this song, I want to share these verses that are appropriate out of the book of Ephesians that Paul writes. He says, you must put away every kind of bitterness. This is Ephesians 4.31. You must put away every kind of bitterness, anger, wrath, quarreling, and evil slanderous talk. Instead, be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave you. And by the way, in the context of those verses, the verse right before that is the verse that talks about us not grieving the Holy Spirit of God. 
May we as a church and may we as individual members of this body not grieve the Spirit of God today. May we let the Spirit of God deal with us as God needs to deal. And maybe even for one person here today who's been carrying around bitterness for a long time, maybe from way back, let God uproot that out of your life today. Today can be a new day for you. A new start, a new attitude with new direction. Surrender to the Lord today.